This podcast episode is brought to you by Iron Source. Iron Source are not a spinach-based nutrition company, as their name might suggest, but are actually a game tech company which builds technologies that help you guys take your games to the next level. The company is developing the leading growth engine for mobile games, offering a robust monetization management platform and data-driven user acquisition platform. What sets IronSource apart is their ability to close the monetization and marketing loop to help developers supercharge growth in a super efficient way. So whether you're looking to drive revenue or to scale your audience smartly and ROI positively, IronSource is a perfect partner for you. We here at Deconstructor of Fun are giant fans of IronSource because it's truly a growth platform that a developer of all sizes can leverage. So we suggest that you head on over to ironsource.com, ironsrc.com, and check out the platform for yourself. Thanks. Hey, everybody. Joe Kim here. Coronavirus issues have been discussed a lot already and likely way too much. So the objective of the discussion Nicholas and I will have today will revolve not so much on the typical stuff and how coronavirus is impacting the game industry, but... We want to focus more on what happens after the crisis and more philosophical and longer term ramifications, what we're calling after crisis. So what are the long term implications and how can we better prepare for the world after coronavirus? And specifically, we'll be talking about one, the long term economic impact, two, deal making and psychology in crisis, three, what do you do to adjust to the new reality, four, business model dichotomy, and five, how gaming will be impacted longer term. And so joining me today for this discussion is Nicholas Herger, formerly of Gondola, which was acquired by Tilting Point. Nicholas, you've been on a few times with me already, but maybe can you do like a really quick intro just to give our audience a bit more context? Uh, Sure. So hi, Joe. Hi, audience. Thanks for having me and uh, thanks for the very kind intro. Um, yeah, a bit of background. So my professional career began <laughs> quite untypical as an uh, intellectual property lawyer in New York. Um, then I started an indie game development shop back in 2009. Uh, we focused on mobile games, made a total of four. Uh, and from there, I co-founded Gondola, the company you just mentioned. We were a machine learning based in-game offer and dynamic pricing platform. And we got acquired by Tilting Point last year. And now I have started 8-Bit Coaching, uh, which is an, a premium service that works exclusively with technical professionals, helping them become great leaders through customized one-on-one coaching. So that's my short intro. All right, great. So maybe we can jump right in. So the first topic is really around the long-term economic impact. So we don't have to confine the discussion to just gaming, but we certainly want to focus with that lens. But just starting more generally from my side, I believe a few key things will happen due to the current coronavirus crisis. The first is we will have massive stimulus and quantitative easing measures by our government, and I'm talking primarily US here. And the central bank, what we've seen is that we've had two trillion in stimulus that took, let's say one and a half years during GFC, the global financial crisis in 08, 09. But we got that in two months this time around. So it's pretty clear that things are moving very fast and that we are likely to have additional stimulus and central bank intervention. We also have a ton of corporate debt, like really shitty debt as well, a mountain of this stuff. And the Fed is buying this crap and other crap like mortgage-backed securities with an unlimited checkbook to keep this pyramid scheme going. So we are in crazy times. 
and the reason I raise this issue has to do with equity prices. We're likely at, in my opinion, we're likely to be at the top or near the top of what Ray Dalio popularized as a long-term debt cycle. So if we are in a regular debt cycle, this puts downward pressure on equity prices for say the next potentially 84 months. In an inflationary debt cycle, there will be shorter term downward pressure on equity prices, but then equity prices start to shoot higher again after the depressionary phase of the inflationary debt cycle. So I do think there's a lot of broad interest in the public game company names. I hold uh, electronic arts from last year, which I'm still up on, as what we've seen is that video games are an incredible hedge against economic recessions and particularly for shelter in place and isolation policies. And I won't dive into the nuances of, of that, but there is a lot of nuance there in terms of boost to gaming, uh, particularly online gaming based upon geo, based upon platform, gameplay type, game monetization, all that kind of stuff. But long story short on this is that we're not only seeing public game company names hold up or even increase during this time, but on the venture and investment side, I'm seeing a lot of recent activity in terms of investments and interest in investments in gaming as again, investors see the value from investing into online video games. So just to bring this home, I'd say we have some short and medium term risk on equity pricing. However, public video game companies have some resistance to that pressure, but longer term, I think video games should outperform the broader market by a bit, especially under recessionary uh, situations. And we should also mention that video games still serve as the greatest value from a cost perspective to consumers. Nicholas, what do you think? Well, first of all, you, you went pretty deep there right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I can compete with that. A couple of things that come to mind. First of all, you said, you know, I'm talking about the US here only. As you can imagine, you know, um, having lived in the U.S. For, for, for more than a de decade, but being from Germany, I also watched, watched German and thereby European news closely. So as far as stimulus packages, et cetera, go, you know, the, the European Union and, uh, you know, in itself, uh, as well as Germany and, and other countries are also like going, going pretty deep and pretty fast at that. So I think everybody uh, has, has taken some lessons from the, from the 2008-2009 global financial crisis and uh, is, is, is acting fast. At the same time, you know, how many more stimulus packages will there be? You know, is this all sufficient? Um, I, I don't think that that is within the scope of our discussion today, but there are certainly question marks that I have about that. So as far as your assessment goes, I, I agree with most of, of what you said. I think as a whole, the video game industry is doing really well right now. Um, Steam, I think, already reported record numbers of concurrent users a couple of weeks ago, right? And, and, and I know from, from talking to a bunch of people over the past couple of weeks uh, in, in my own network that, uh, that a lot of publishers are seeing a similar trend with their existing games, right? So when, when you talk to somebody who has a bunch of established games in the market, doesn't really matter what platform it is, uh, you will hear, you know, they all say something like, ooh, I don't want to jinx it, but overall, you know, this is actually, this is actually good. We are, we are at least level. Um, most of them actually report that they are up. Um, I've had somebody compare this to what they generally see during summer breaks, right, when the kids all of a sudden get home from school and just play more. So that being said, uh, video game industry as a whole is doing good, and long-term, um, this will rather help than hurt the industry, no doubt. However, 
And that's also what I'm seeing. In, individually, I know a bunch of people that are hurting right now. And so from what I see, a lot of the individual transactions that were in the making this spring, you know, whether that's investments, whether that's publishing deals, whether that's, you know, a freelancer who was securing, you know, a new gig or something, are either hibernating or have simply been called off. So if you were caught by this in the middle of, you know, pushing something, you know, through the pipeline, I think uh, you feel slightly different about uh, the state of this industry right now because the the long-term perspective, you know, equity markets, et cetera, don't really matter to you that much. What matters to you is that what you were planning and what you, you were trying to push through is not really happening right now. Yes, there is interest from institutional investors. I, I, I'm also seeing that a lot, but I, I think, and that goes back to my previous point, there's a big difference between interest and closing a deal, right? So people fishing around versus versus people actually doing something. To support your your point, however, I, I spoke to a founder of a game company this week that is not looking to raise because they are in a really good spot. And and that seems to be the exact reason that the VCs are taking the interest in them right now. Uh, and, and he literally re- was, was telling me, dude, I'm having inbound interest, right? Like they are approaching me. And uh, and I think, yeah, that, that's that the, the exact reason is that, you know, they are looking pretty good. They are not really looking for, for any financial help right now. And, and that seems to be a relatively safe bet from an institutional investor's point of view. But I also know uh, a bunch of gaming VC deals that didn't close or that are in serious jeopardy. They are companies that had the momentum on their side just six weeks ago. And now that momentum is completely gone and it's very unlikely that they will get their rounds closed. And those are all companies that are in growth mode. Uh, and they are now finding themselves in a situation where they all of a sudden, you know, have to, you know, readjust to a new reality from where they were doing, I think, most things right. And, you know, trajectory was like this to now they are in a situation where they suddenly bid off more than they can chew, right? Um, And uh, the house of cards starts crumbling a little. And to go further, I also know of two companies that will probably announce layoffs next week or, or the week thereafter. One for financial reasons, the other one because a big publishing deal that, they, um, you know, that they had virtually done will actually not come through. So that means, you know, the game will not be produced uh, as they had planned and that will have impact on their staff. Uh, and then the last thing that I wanted to say is I know a bunch of freelancers, as I'm sure you also do, you know, in marketing and graphics, sound editing that are you know, re- really crucial to the industry. And when you talk to them, it's a dire situation. I mean, they report that they have already lost more than 50% of their business. And it looks like that's already uh, that's only the beginning. So I really feel for these guys, and uh, and I think that's probably the most extreme example I can make between yeah, industry as a, overall, you know, KPIs looks looks really good, and the the long term outlook is strong, but the short term impact in some instances is so catastrophic that everything that's not mission critical is on the chopping block, and some companies that looked really good in early February are probably in a situation right now when, where they're not going to make it. So I think, as always, there are two sides to the story. What do you think? Yeah, right. And I think that it's also partially situational context. So depending on the company, depending on your situation, the interest is going to be different. But maybe another point to make would be the phase of the thinking process, right? So during the first phase, when we first started seeing the shelter-in-place policies, when we first started seeing the increased engagement, people were thinking about 
video game companies, especially the online games, is a hedge against other types of investment. So there's that interest from maybe four to six weeks ago. But now I think phase two is, uh-oh, looking at key economic indicators, looking at unemployment numbers, looking at where things are starting to go. Now investors may be thinking, are we headed for a recession, depression, then going from being kind of like, uh, you know, trigger happy to like wanting to... <laughs> Wanting to maintain some dry powder, right? Right, so, right. Because, yeah. you know, generally when we talk about spending during a recession, there's certainly a shift away from luxury and discretionary spending in those kinds of environments. So I think that may be the phase two of the thinking. And then I think phase three is really going to be happening once, once we start getting more clarity around the longer term impact. How long is this going to be how real is a recession depression going to be and then how will games and especially mobile gaming if you're a mobile gaming company or the online gaming spend how's that going to hold up right like and without data people get nervous yeah but moving on let's move on to the second more 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 subjects to cover here yeah that's true <laughs> right <laughs> So uh, I think our second second topic um, that that you already introduced during the intro, um, we we are calling you know deal making and human psychology in crisis, and and I think I, I quickly want to introduce this section. So, given the discussion we just had, and given what you just said, strong player turnout, pretty perfect product for a lockdown situation in general, right? Video games are um, the financial incentives, and you know lots of opportunity. I think it's interesting to look at the human side of things. Also, you know, in our general spirit of this, of this discussion, you know, we want to look ahead and you know beyond the crisis. And the human side of things during a crisis is always an interesting one to yacht because it impacts deal making uh, in particular. So a lot of done deals, right? I say done deals because you know, people talk about deals, uh, whether it's in development or in publishing or, um, or in financing are currently, you know, paused. And I think a lot of that is not because either party is not interested anymore, right? So if, if, if I'm a great development studio and I have a publishing partner and, you know, we have been, you know, in, in, this, uh, in this dance with each other for a while, my opinion of the development studio, if I'm the publisher, is probably not going to, you know, go from positive to negative overnight. And the same holds true for uh, the perspective of the development studio and the publisher. But at the same time, it's these deals then still, you know, go into hibernation mode or, or, or are simply called off. Because at the end of the day, <laughs> there are humans uh, who are the decision makers and humans have a tendency to hunker down and wait right now rather than take action. The reason is that at the end of the day, I think we are, we are herd animals, meaning we're strongly influenced by what our peers are doing. You know, it's like when everybody's moving in one direction, I have a strong tendency to follow and it, it, it takes a, a, log, a lot of cognitive power to actually resist that urge. And uh, in the end, the, the question is always, where's your attention, right? And where is our attention? Now, there's a lot of insecurity out there, first and foremost, because this is bad. Uh, nobody really long uh, knows how long it will take. 
And I think skepticism hasn't infected people's minds. Everybody's looking around, what are the other guys doing? And what that quickly creates is a downward spiral where investors have a tendency to fall like dominoes and the defaults, default answer for certain transactions goes from yes to no, right? So I might've been, you know, very interested and, you know, and like they were fishing around and all of that, but, you know, there's skepticism, hesitation, and all of these things uh, creeping in. From my perspective, that has two consequences. The first one is that some companies that were in a good position all of a sudden have the rug pulled underneath them just because the timing turned out to be terrible. There's, I don't think there are, there are any other reasons. No, fundamentally, it's, it's still a good deal. It's still a good company to invest in whatever it is. It's just the timing is, is just killing it. At the same time, there's also a lot of opportunity out there, and you already spoke about that earlier, for the bold that uh, are bold enough to swim against the stream and secure deals right now that otherwise wouldn't be accessible. So those can be deals that became available because somebody uh, else backed out. Those can be deals that become available because the asking price you know, dropped significantly and all of a sudden this is you know, within the range of, of what somebody can afford. Or it can even be deals that only surfaced because people running for cover and want out. So example would be you know, somebody was not in the mood to to sell their company and all of a sudden you know seeing what's going on around them you know they might all of a sudden be be open to to be acquired or something so the bottom line for me is then this i think in times like these if you want to be swimming against the current uh, if you want to be a good deal maker and if you want to take advantage of this and find opportunity in this crisis and there undoubtedly is is tons of opportunity but you really got to be able to control your emotions which is something that's much easier said than done right what has always worked for me uh, both during my my years as an entrepreneur as well as you know when it comes to investments is talking to somebody that has a great understanding of the subject matter, but that is neither financially nor emotionally involved in, in the decision that I have to make. So, so in the gondola days, you know, we had a really great advisory board where we just had experts for, for all of the you know, crucial areas for us. And I would frequently reach out to these guys when we were stuck and, and just you know, talk things through with them and got a common collected answer. Uh, nobody would ever make decisions for us, but it was really helpful in order to yeah, control your emotions and, and see what's going on. So in other words, you got to find a way through all the noise in your head and assess the facts rather than follow the herd, which I think is, is, is a very worthwhile exercise. But as I, as I said earlier, it's, it's much, much easier said than that. Right. And just a point in terms of getting input from other folks, I would say the one other way to think about that is the way that a lot of like these hedge fund investment guys think about it, which is if you have an opinion that's important, you try to find really smart people that have the opposite opinion, right? Correct. <laughs> so that you can get that contrarian viewpoint as well. But Overall, in terms yeah, of- Yeah, just about that. I think it's, um, you know, people, and I don't want to get political here, but there, you know, we, we always accuse, you know, people of, of different political views that they are living in this echo chamber where just surrounding themselves, you know, by the media and the people that actually have the same opinion. And I think what you just said is super crucial. You want to find somebody that is well-informed and really smart, but has an opposite opinion because then there are two possible outcomes, right? One could be, you're actually persuaded that whatever your approach was is not the right one, that you should you know, back out of that deal, uh, that you actually should do the deal, whatever is going on. Or 
the other guy might be, you know, well prepared and, and have a lot of good arguments, but it, it doesn't change your opinion and it actually hardens your conviction and makes you feel more confident in, you know, staying the course and doing what, what you were intending to do in the first place. So either way you win. And, and I think that's, uh, that's really where, where the magic of these kind of conversations is. Right. And the one other, just to add a little bit of nuance to that part as well, is that I think that the most successful investment guys have that approach because they have a lot of transactions in their industry and they have to be right on those. But I will say for industries where you don't have a lot of transactions, which is like in gaming, you know, you make a game over two years in a lot of different, and not, not to go too off topic, but in a lot of different cultural contexts, you just have to have the perception that you're right, not to actually be right. So I think that we have in the gaming industry, a lot to learn from the people who have to actually be right and to adopt some of those best practices. But overall, in terms of your assessment, as far as the typical psychology is concerned, I have to, you know, I definitely agree. I also believe that one other way of thinking about this is from the perspective, since we're talking about psychology in, in terms of motivation. And uh, fundamentally, I think that people are either motiva motivated by greed or fear, but the psychology in crisis is often confusion, right? And so uh, should I be greedy? Should I be fearful? And so while the market sees a potential discount in let, let's say the equities market and in asset pricing, you don't quite know what to do. So you don't know whether to be greedy or fearful. And then how do we process limited information? How do we act on greed or fear with the little bit of information that we have? And so, it's my belief that just given where we are right now, you know, April 1st, that in the coming weeks, we're going to start to shift towards fear rather than greed as we start to see not only the effects of some of our sort of dumbass prevention policies around coronavirus here in the U.S., but also impact on the economy from unemployment, from excess leverage, from excess greed. But that's also going to be a moving target against most likely, in, in my opinion, a bunch of extra stimulus that's going to be coming our way. So I think kind of shifting back to gaming, what, what does this have to do with gaming? Well, I think that when we're thinking about psychology and to some of the points that, that you raised before, is that I think potentially the biggest beneficiaries of the current situation and environment will be gaming companies that are structured in a way to take advantage of the situation. Uh, and it's generally been incredibly positive for our industry, but I think that a lot of smart, rational marketers are going to be thinking risk off, right? They're gonna haircut RPU curves, broadly flatten rev revenues, but what if you have a game that has an incredibly long life cycle? If you've got a two or three year payback window and you're seeing attractive CPIs against the threat of to potentially short or medium term hits to your ARPU and LTV profiles because of, let's say, recessionary or depressionary pressures. Well, what do you do? And uh, again, to your point before, you know, Warren Buffett is famous for saying, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. This speaks to your comments on herd mentality. So if you've got a game that can absorb lots of gameplay, if you've got a relatively uncapped monetization model, you've got a long-term time window on your game life cycle, my recommendation against the advice of I'm sure, you know, others in the industry right now would be risk Double on. down, right? Yeah, yeah risk yeah. on. So, and since we're talking about psychology, I think uh, the other way to think about the current situation 
for a marketer is in terms of game theory. So you've got multiple game studios playing in the same game, buying traffic with limited information in an auction-based marketplace where most likely the default perspective is going to be risk off with all the recessionary stuff happening. So th this situation reminds me a lot of this card game that I played a lot in college called Guts or Two Card Guts. And, and, and you know, in this game, every player is dealt two cards. All the players get a chance to stay in or out of a hand. Whoever stays in battles for the ante. If you're the only player in, you automatically win the ante. If you're a loser, you have to pay the ante. So you can imagine the ante can get really big really fast. But if everyone else is going risk off and trying to, let's say, discover paybacks or taking down big haircuts on ARPU profiles, you can win by staying in the game at scale. The other sort of card game way of thinking about this is like in a game of Texas Hold'em. Going for a flush draw on the turn is mathematically a losing proposition, but if you go all in betting your opponent's fold, then you can actually win. So yeah, I think there's a lot to think about, and I'm glad you raised this issue about psychology because I think the other psychological uh, thing I think about during crisis is panic and, you know, you talked about it as well, but emotion. So generally speaking, I believe human beings make really shitty decisions when they panic. So excessive greed. Terrible, excessive fear, horrible decisions, right? Right. Yeah, because, because all reason goes out the window in that moment, yes. and that's usually not so great. Yeah, sorry. Uh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, excessive fear, excessive fear kind of fucks up your judgment. That's just the fact of this life we live in and of our biology. The Stoics knew this, and they've got a lot of philosophies on how to live to temper emotion. But above all else, they have this concept of what they call a ruling reason or ruling principle. Seneca once said, life without a design is erratic. So without that structure, that system, things are just going to go a little crazy. The investor Ray Dalio calls it a system or as the book he authored is titled Principles. So I would also encourage anyone in this context of psychology to create a system for themselves. I'm advocating for a decision-making framework prior to panic, prior to excessive greed, so that when you're trying to make an important decision or judgment about something or someone, that you do so without being adversely impacted by erratic thinking, a flawed process, trying to make a kind of spur of the moment ad hoc framework because you're in a hurry and you miss something critical. So the summary of this, just to wrap up this section of what I'm trying to say regarding psychology is that one, there's opportunity based upon psychological behavior. So having a game theoretical perspective, I believe can lead to opportunity. And secondly, that is, you know, we both kind of agree on emotions screw people up. So have a system. Don't rely on critical decision-making without having that system and plan. And so that's the point there. Yeah, just to wrap this up, fully agree with what you just said. I think as far as what that system is, this is probably a highly individual decision, right? So I mentioned before, you know, for me, I, I have always 
been able to surround myself with, you know, a couple of, you know, wise people that I can reach out to in certain situations. And, uh, and I think for me, it's really crucial that on the one hand, they understand the subject matter, but simultaneously, if they are financially in the same boat that I am or, or you know, like emotionally, right? So it, it, it cannot be, you know, a family member. Uh, it, it, it cannot be your co-founder or, or, or something like that. It's, it's, it's right. got to be a bit of an outsider, but that's something that's very helpful. And then as I think as far as, uh, you know, since you mentioned Warren Buffett before and as far as investments go, they are just like some, some general rules uh, that you should follow, you know, when, when in doubt. And I think whatever mixture of these kind of frameworks, you know, diversification or whatever comes to mind, you know, works for you if you have them down so that in, in a mode of crisis and when you're overwhelmed and maybe even, you know, close to panic, you can, you can reach into, into that toolbox. I think that's really, really helpful. Maybe not even so much in order to, you know, make that magic decision that you're, you're looking for, but just in order to get some distance, zoom out a little bit and just collect yourself uh, and, and enable yourself again to, you know, view this more, more objectively than, than you were before. I think that's already half of the battle. Right. All right. So the next topic for discussion is what do you and I do right now to adjust to this new reality that we're living in? And so mm -hmm. for me, I probably had my least productive three weeks of my life these past few weeks. And so for me, I've adapted incredibly poorly to the new reality, at least for right now. And so for me, it starts with getting the train moving. Some people call it making the boat go faster. So whether it's a boat or a train or whatever you want to call it. In my own personal situation, I'm trying to get a new game studio going. So I'm focusing all of my energy and actions now on what are the things that will make things go faster? How do I get this train moving as fast as possible despite the environment that I'm in. And so unfortunately, I think the, the perspective I think that people should have, although it sounds a little bit, bit bad, is that really the world just doesn't give two shits about your life, right? I mean, Cronus doesn't give a shit that I've got to burn, I've got a family to feed. And so I think that I just need to get things moving, whether there is a coronavirus or not, the other side of that is about hard choices. Uh, there's a great quote from Marcus Aurelius, not to talk about Stoics too much, but that states, chasing what can't be done is madness. And so as our situations have changed, you know, this is the time you do need a plan, you need a system, and, but sometimes you also need to make hard choices about paths and possibilities that make sense or they don't make sense. And sometimes we want something so badly, but our environment has changed that we'll just hold on to those things. And so again, chasing that is, is madness. And sometimes for those choices that we'd like and we can pursue, it's basically, you know, again, it, it kind of sounds hard, but the way that I talk to myself is I tell myself, don't be a pussy, deal with the hand that we've been dealt. <laughs> no. Again, that might sound a bit harsh, but for me, adjusting to the new reality is about that, about tempering expectations, about being realistic, about making hard choices and stepping up to face what the new reality actually is. What do you think, Nicholas? Um, I, I think well said and, you know, and spoken from the heart. Uh, I, I, I want to pick up just where you left off, you know, speaking of the hand that you've been dealt. I mean, you have made the card game and, and even like Texas Hold'em analogy before. And I think that 
every new reality that you're confronted with has to do a lot with timing, right? So how does what happens right now coincide with other events in your life? So if we just go back to the card game, right? Playing the hand that you're dealt, that obviously has partly to do with whatever it is that you're holding, you know, like two aces are certainly better than, you know, two seven off suit. But at the same time, it also has a lot to do with timing, you know, what's going on at the table. How many opponents are there, right, just sitting with you? How many are still in this game? How, how many have already folded? What's your chip stack, right? What, what, what does your chip stack look like? Um, when, when are the blinds going to go up again, right? So there, there are a lot of factors, you know, outside that can be attributed to time and time progressing that you can control that are really important. So speaking of how do I adjust... Uh, to, to crisis and how, how timing is crucial. Like an obvious thing that I can say is I, I'm obviously super happy right now that we sold Gondola last fall. We had multiple offers to choose from, putting us in a very good position. And it would have been a totally different story if we wanted to start this process right now. And that's sheer luck. It's just timing. It's nothing else. So very happy about that. But then at the same time, you, you just said, you know, you had the least productive three weeks of your life. I, I'm, I'm not sure if that holds true for me, but I have also been seriously affected by what's happening right now. First of all, anybody out there who has young children, and I know you do, uh, Joe, and those young children are home 24-7 and need to be entertained, uh, will know what I'm talking about when I say it's tough. Uh, don't get me wrong, I love my kids to death, but uh, they require a lot of time and energy right now that I don't have for other things. So that is already you know, time allocation, how do I deal with that? Scheduling my workday is therefore so much more challenging than it normally is, uh, which also then means that I have to make a lot of choices. And you spoke about hard choices before, uh, right? Prioritize one thing over, over another. And on the one hand, that really sucks. But on the other hand, from an entrepreneurial point of view, there's also something positive there because it forces me to focus. And that's generally like if, if I have a forcing function that you know, where I sometimes say, oh, I have these three things and I want to do it all at the same time and they're all great, but, you know, because of certain restrictions, I can only do one. More often than not, that turns out to be actually the better process uh, and the, the, the more successful attempt or approach than working on all of these things simultaneously. A concrete example that I can maybe share how I have to uh, adapt to uh, my new reality right now. So I, I mentioned during the intro um, that I'm now running a new business called 8-Bit Coaching where I work with technical professionals. And I had planned to officially launch that at GDC two weeks ago, right? Well, so GDC obviously didn't happen, right? So what do I do? Uh, what does that mean? Yeah, do I delay the launch? Do I find a different channel to announce this? You know, what should I focus on? And the answer for me is that while I can't go out right now and launch the business the way I intended to, there's also an opportunity for me in this crisis. So what I'm considering right now is to, to switch to a completely different strategy where, where I don't just try to push through what, what, what I had originally you know, planned to do, but where I rather you know, zoom out and recognize that times are super tough and that people are completely overwhelmed. And, and then I think about what that means for entrepreneurs and specifically for, for technical co-founders out there, the demographic you know, that I'm working with. And, uh, and based on that, I've decided that in certain cases, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be willing to sacrifice a significant part of my salary in order to help these guys with what they're dealing with right here and now. So 
rather than focusing on oh, how do I launch my new business, focus on who can I actually help right now and uh, let the, the business and that launch take the backseat and, uh, and apply my, my skill set in order to, to do something good. Because I think that's the right thing for, for me to do right now. I like to help these guys. And, and then with a bit of luck, you know, I, I will be rewarded with a few long-term relationships that can potentially open other doors for me. And then, you know, that, that might then, you know, funnel into a, a launch strategy later again. Bottom line, and the point I'm, I'm, I'm making here is this. In times like these, rigidly sticking to a plan that you had and then, you know, be frustrated that it doesn't come along the way you had intended is, is usually not the best thing to do. I think, you know, trying to zoom out, getting the emotions out and all of that and thinking about what right now makes sense, how you can play the hand that you have been dealt, right, to the, to the best of your abilities and adjust to these new realities is something really crucial. It's obviously a crucial skill set for, for any entrepreneur or business person out there. But there are also new opportunities that otherwise would have not been there. And, um, and if you can, <laughs> just to, to use the old saying with a lemon and the lemonade, if you can put yourself in a position like this, I think that's a much better way to adjust to new realities than just, you know, having to deal with the, with the constrictions all day long. Right. All right, moving on. Moving on. Next subject. So I guess we call this business model dichotomy and I'll just quickly introduce that. So we have already talked about this a bunch here and now obviously we're getting back to Corona again, but Corona seems to be dividing society into two camps in many, many different ways. Um, the, the most obvious one is, you know, people that are suffering, uh, you know, from the virus right now versus people that don't. Um, but then we also see, you know, people that have savings right now versus people that don't have savings, uh, people that have a job versus people without a job or a job in, in jeopardy. Uh, I said before, you know, much, much more, more trivial example, but people with children and no time versus people without children and tons of time to, you know, read books and binge watch stuff on Netflix. But for the game industry, I'm also seeing a division and, and that division among lots of others is when it comes to business models right now. So from what I'm observing, Subscription models, especially those with a small monthly amount, like somewhere between five to 10 bucks, look great. Talk to a bunch of guys and, and everybody's telling me I'm, I'm seeing zero impact, right? It, this, is, this is all just you know, chugging along. So they are in a, in a pretty fantastic position. While transaction-based business models, um, meaning, oh, I'm making a lot of money if a deal comes through, but I don't do a lot of them, are hurting pretty badly right now, both on the uh, on the level of big companies as well as individual uh, freelancers. We spoke about that before. So I guess the question I would like to raise is that does that mean that everybody should go out there and do subscription services right now? Um, it's also going to be interesting, you know, with these kind of experiences, how will our industry be changed? And and I guess for you, um, what I would like to hear your take on is what kind of opportunities do you see out there as far as business models go? Well, first of all, I think you're bringing up a really interesting point, which maybe we could just more generally call the dichotomy of coronavirus. Okay. Because what the epidemic for me has revealed is all of the dichotomy that exists in our society today. And it, I think it really goes across the board, right? From Republicans to Democrats, from Trump supporters to Trump haters, to the way in which 
These very same people interpret the same set of limited data in different ways, depending on their politics or to support specific worldviews. And just to take this conversation deep for just a minute here, I do think the current epidemic has exposed a really fundamental dichotomy between the way America is divided. So to be honest with you, and again, just to keep it deep and real for just this one minute, the way, whether it's poor white people and rich white people are reacting to this virus has really made me rethink what it means to be American. And I'll be the first and last person to say that, in my view, the US is the best country in the world without question. But really, I will say when we speak of dichotomy, there is a part of me that is very concerned of where our country is headed based on the dichotomy of the people here, of wealth. And in my view, what's going to happen based upon increasing wealth and societal gaps. But let's take it back to business model. <laughs> I, but I still have to say, I agree with that. I'm, I'm worried about that too. But taking it back to business model, and the theme of dichotomy, to just take that theme a bit further, I'll go ahead and actually take the opposite side of your argument, which is to say that I do think subscriptions do become more valuable when you've got a lot of free time, but I actually think a transaction-based free-to-play model in this environment is great and subscriptions conversely could suck. Now, you need to have now, this is situational, right? So you need to have the type of game that can absorb, especially from a free-to-play and mobile perspective, can absorb the increased gameplay and activity. And you need to have a monetization model that's not like, let's say, a heavily discounted battle pass that limits your monetization. But if you're sitting on a transactions-based, engagement-absorbing, unlimited uh, monetization model, you're likely minting money right now. So subscriptions with the same price but absorbing increasing activity especially for content driven games where you have the content treadmill i'd actually rather be on the opposite side of that now what are the games that can benefit from the transactions it's not across the board it's it's a more limited set but i can kind of see both sides of that the the dichotomy agreed um except for one thing i okay. i have to say i i think regarding free to play this has to be rather offset with premium than with subscriptions. So I think subscriptions are a different animal in the sense that it is a recurring service or there's a recurring service nature to them. While both premium and free to play are very transactional, either with a, you know, one-time premium purchase, you know, I'm spending $60 in order to buy, you know, fancy PlayStation 4 game or, or it's not a purchase, rather a licensing deal, uh, or a, uh, a staggered deal, you know, where the base layer comes for free and then there is a bunch of small transactions. So I agree with what you're saying, you know, there might be more opportunity there, but I, I think that the, you know, what's going head to head is not so much um, subscription model versus free to play. I think it would be more free to play versus premium. And, and, I, and there I would say you're definitely uh, better off with free to play right now than, than with premium uh, in, in these times. But I'm also sure there's somebody out there who would, who would you know, strongly argue against that and, 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 and say right now, you have no idea what you're talking about, look at my data. So it really depends. But uh, yeah, other than that, I think you're spot on. Uh, but I, I do think it's this, this whole concept around dichotomy, society and business models and gaming and having the different perspectives and understanding your situational context against that dichotomy is probably 
a really good discussion to have. Yep. So, but okay, let's save that for another day. <laughs> yeah, let's close this, this uh, podcast out with a talk about our final topic, which is how this epidemic could potentially impact gaming longer term. So we already talked about the potential financial impact, but just to throw a little bit of additional flavor and specific nuance to that as well, I think the other way to think about the financial impact is by looking at the impact of gaming companies from a stage perspective. So for the one end, for the large public companies, this should be great for stock price and the perception of value in holding a publicly traded gaming company as that hedge against recessions and things like that, having a lot of great economic value for entertainment. And for early stage companies on the other side, I'm hearing, I, I think we're hearing a little bit of mixed things. Maybe it's a little bit more risk off with the recessionary pressures, but overall, I feel like there's been a lot of increased activity in terms of friends that I know that have started getting term sheets that have gotten increased commitments to um, investment in their companies. So that kind of leaves the mid-tier, right? And I think they're left out a little bit. And so if you play the typical try to grow and scale game at flat to negative margins, you're likely feeling a bit exposed right now. And the debt market is not looking so great, right? As we no, not so great. About <laughs> as our first topic. And so as with all big crises, the other thing to think about is that, you know, we generally tend to overcorrect once we've had time to recover and analyze what happened. And I think at that time, I think people are going to realize a lot of games missed a big opportunity when we're thinking about kind of what's happened right now, both from a marketing and grabbing market share perspective, as well as from a fundamental product model perspective of not being able to take advantage of all the increased engagement and all this free time available to players. So uh, a couple things on that. On the marketing side, I think marketers are going to have data from this current crisis. And if you give market, a marketer any curve or any bit of data, they're going to run with it. So I think the next crisis that we have, I think folks are going to be a lot more aggressive and there won't be as many opportunities from a market share and insults perspective. But I do believe right now there's certainly a lot of opportunity. And on the product side, I think people are going to try and really think about from a portfolio perspective, having some games that can deal with higher engagement better, can better absorb transactional monetization with that increased engagement and free time. And thinking about live ops, people are going to have events and promotions ready to go, unlike this time, to better <laughs> capture share and people's attention. So it won't be like the simple hacky, you know, 100% experience boost or here's extra energy type events we saw this time around. I think the next time around, the events you'll see are going to be specific, more complicated, more targeted, and a lot more effective. Now, what do you think? I think you're raising a really interesting point, uh, especially your last comment here. Because I think one of the big questions is if the goal for the game industry, you know, like looking out, has to be, you know, to adjust and adapt to a big crisis, or should the question rather be, how do we run with a crisis, right? So, you know, it's almost like carriage and horse, right? Like, how are you going to do it? So, let, let, let me explain what I mean. I think... You and I and most people out there agree that the game industry as a whole will not suffer a long-term Im negative impact from this. You know, it's quite the opposite. So we talked about this before and, you know, I, I think that's relatively well established. 
I also agree with your assessments, with your assessment that we have a tendency to overcorrect. I think that's another human tendency um, that, that you see in crisis quite a lot. Uh, but what's the takeaway then? Take more risk next time around, make bigger deals, bolder marketing campaigns, and, you know, double down when others hit rock bottom. There's certainly some truth to that. However, the game industry is an industry that generates content. And that content has been heavily influenced by live ops for many years. You know, as free to play came out, you know, live ops really came about. And now, you know, a, a lot of big games out there, mobile certainly, but, but also, you know, console and PC have, have live ops needs, right, in order to keep audiences uh, engaged. And so, so the question I think is like, what's the play on live ops here? Uh, is, is, is that try to be ready for the next time people are confined to their homes and have a ton of time? Or is it more that you, that you could take an approach where you let the events out there be part of the content? So adjust the content generation and the live ops in a way where part of the creation and the deployment is, is linked to the, to the events in the real world, right? Um, I actually know guys that I uh, that have been working on something like this for for quite a while now, and I love chatting with them because it's just something really interesting. And uh, and the way they approach this is that the events that drive the content and the live ops don't need to be you know spun up uh, in imagination, but that they are influenced by events in the real world. And those events, by the way, don't have to be you know a horrible crisis the way that we are going through right now, right? They can be driven by a lot of other things. But conceptually, I think it's really interesting or it's a really interesting question and yet another opportunity in the gaming space that could get accelerated through what we are all experiencing now. The, the general idea of, you know, are we getting ready for yet another crisis where people are confined to their homes by having a lot of things, you know, ready to deploy and doubling down? Or is there a way to merge the two together and have, you know, real life events be part of the narrative that gets injected or into games or merged with the games and, 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 and can be part of the appeal, what, what makes, you know, playing games in, in, in these times uh, so interesting. I don't know the answer, but I think it's an interesting question. Right. And I think that what this might actually speak to is some of the advice that, you know, we have in terms of having a system and a plan, right? So it might be more about having a playbook. So the next time around, as we have isolation policies or where you're going to see... By, by the way, do you notice how we are already assuming that this is not the last time, right? I mean, everybody's well, calling... Yeah, but it's not, right? Everybody's calling it a once-in-a-generation event and I'm 40, right? I have never experienced anything like this. And, and for me, by the way, the, the single most significant part of the experience is that I can't think of anything else that has happened worldwide, right? It doesn't matter who the person is that you're talking to. Everybody is affected by this to various degrees. While a lot of other crises are, you know, either, you know, in one geographic, right, or, or affect, you know, certain people, you know, in certain industries more than in others. Well, that still holds true, but everybody is affected on a day-to-day -day basis by this right now significantly. So, so that's something. But then, yeah, the other thing I just said is like, we are, I'm assuming the same thing. I'm assuming this is certainly not the last time we have to deal with an outbreak like this. And, and we are all thinking at, you know, what we can do better. But, sorry. It doesn't necessarily have to even be the same thing, right? 
in the face of increasing engagement or more free time, what is the playbook? Like, let's say we're going to see a spike in downloads. How do you land grab against that in terms of events, in terms of marketing, in terms of things like that? In the face of uncertain ARPU and LTV profiles, what's the playbook there given the different kinds of games that you have? And if you assume that people have a lot more free time and are going to be consuming your content at a much faster rate, what is the plan? How do you immediately understand, okay, this is the plan. We're going to ramp up our content by this much. We're using these studios and having that plan in place is the way to more maximally take advantage of these kinds of situations, whether it's from coronavirus or the next epidemic or something else. All right. So that's, I think that's it, right? I think we're basically done here. And yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think I have no idea how long this has been, but we've been at it for a while. So it's probably a good point to uh you know, to stop, but, but thanks for having yeah, me. So Super maybe, a, maybe a final message, just so we don't end on too negative of a note here <laughs> is, I would like to highly encourage people in this time, given that a lot of people do have more free time to really do two things. First, you know, we've talked a lot about this discussion in terms of systems and principles. And I think in your regular life, because you don't have that much time to think deeply, I think this is the time to do it. So as the Stoics say, hurry to your own ruling reason, that ruling principle, right? And so whatever your particular situation is, what's coming for you, I think creating a system to think through how to make the best decisions going forward will be very helpful. In my own personal life, I'm both kind of talking, going back to dichotomy, fearful and greedy. So like I've been sitting on cash for a while. So the current investment environment seems pretty attractive. And so I'm coming up with a system, a structure for how to invest my cash in this environment where I'm greedy. On the fearful side, I'm fearful about what's going on with the startup I'm trying to start, with my career, with trying to feed my family longer term. So this is the part where I talked about like one, not being a pussy, stepping up, facing the reality, making hard decisions, but also here calls for, in my opinion, a system and a plan. So, you know, my message would be, please do think about this, think deeply and create that system and plan for your own specific situation. And my final message would be that to your point, when you talked about, you know, a lot of people hurting, I think that I agree with you. I think a lot of people are hurting right now that you know, when you look at the statistics across America, you know, 59% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. 40% of Americans can't take an unexpected cash hit of $400. And this goes back again to the dichotomy of the world we live in, a bunch of other stuff that we talked about, but there are a bunch of people with jobs and guaranteed income that couldn't care less, right? And I mean, they don't have a care in the world. They aren't hurting, but I do think that now if you are in a position to help, this is the time, this is an opportunity to reach out to people and to help someone out if you can. So I'd love to end on that note. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I think I, you know, if, if, if I can share one more thing from my personal experience, in crises, doesn't really matter what the cause is, right? If the cause is this or if the cause is something, you know, in my personal life or in my business life or whatever. But um, I think the single most important thing that you can do as a human being is to keep on moving. 
that sounds obvious, but speaking from personal experience, you know, if, if you're really under the gun, there is a there's a deer in the headlight reaction that's very possible, right? Where you just like freeze and you don't really know what to do and you get paralyzed. And that's actually the reaction that makes makes a lot of things go way worse than they otherwise would have to be. So regardless of what it is that you're facing and, and what's going on, if you can somehow keep on moving, right? Even if it's just a, a little bit, you know, during that day, if you can get something done, if you can somehow make some progress, that I think is the way to get yourself out of most situations, right? It's not always going to be possible, but if it's possible, um, then you know, look for these opportunities because I've learned that from a, from a very dear friend of mine that I've known for, I don't know, uh, almost my entire life. And, and, and he's been a serial entrepreneur too. And, and he actually has, uh, has experienced bankruptcy and all that, but then came back from it. And, and, and he taught me many, many years ago, you know, you always have to keep on moving because when doors close, other doors will open. And I wholeheartedly believe that to be true. This holds true, I think, for, for, for the United States, for the world, but also for all of us individually. So be ready for these opportunities when they pop up and do what you can. All right. I think that's it. Thanks, Nicholas. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> Have a Bye. good one and uh, looking forward to the next one. Sounds good. Bye.